Hello, I'm Anthony Santa. I'm Dr. Michael Smith. And this is Fusion Health Radio, the health, lifestyle, and mindset podcast. Episode 54, Resolving Addiction to Sugar, Caffeine, and Alcohol. Welcome to Fusion Health Radio, your source for inspiration, information, and insight on what it really takes and what really matters on your journey to abundant health. Hello and welcome back to another edition of Fusion Health Radio. And uh, hello and welcome if this is your first time here. I'm Anthony Santa in studio today with that guy. Michael Smith. How's it going? Pretty good, Michael. Good to have you here. Uh, we're, we're on a bit of a roll getting organized with our uh, podcast um, ing, podcasting, <laughs> if I can say that. Uh, and uh, I say that only because I've actually got a pen in my hand and a book in front of me. After three years of doing this, <laughs> we finally got ourselves a little bit more official and organized. Uh, if this is your first time here, Michael and I sit down uh, every Sunday afternoon and uh, we talk shop around things to do with health, lifestyle, mindset. Um, a couple of the uh, previous podcasts we did uh, were more on the mindset side. Uh, karma, I think, is probably still um, rocking it out there. I looked at the stats before I came to the microphone today. and It's the number one podcast so far. Wow. Yeah. Um, and uh, today we're going to be talking, uh, I guess, continuing the conversation we had with the episode we did last time, which was the three whys of addiction. And uh, that's W-H-Y-S, not W-I-S-E. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Michael, do you want to give us a quick overview of what we uh, discussed last time? Uh, well, essentially, when any of us kind of pops into our lives more consciously and recognizes that we might be compensating for stress, for loneliness, for trauma... Uh, other kinds of, you know, insult that may have happened to our lives and ourselves in some way. Um, once we realize, you know, we're locked into a build up and kind of blow off the steam pattern of behavior. Um, the first thing most of us have to do is just get honest and say, yep, so I know why I'm doing this. And at a certain point when you know that, you know, you're marriage isn't working or you really hate your job or you actually have some kind of functional insomnia and although you think what you're stuffing in your face is helping you maybe in a deeper sense of medicine actually sleep which is usually untrue subjectively a lot of people control symptoms with you know over-the-counter things or black market things or uh you know things you can buy once you're 19 or 18 or 15 depending on where you live <laughs> and um i mean it's it's everywhere i mean we're all doing that i mean if if anything uh, social media has taught us about ourselves as a species is short-term gratification and anything that has to do with feeling once again how we fit into our social world in the sense of social media is probably the most profoundly um, kind of in your face you know un undeniable statistic without the numbers like oh my god we're the most addictive primates ever like give us anything that's going to give us short-term gratification and it's very likely about 80 percent of us will just sign right up mm -hmm. and uh so that's kind of the first why is so we all do this and you're doing it this way and because you feel this need and until you're okay with that you're lying to yourself uh, and I don't mean to say that to be, uh, I don't know, abrupt or aggressive. It's just to say, like, when until you can sit there and say, I have an addiction or a compensatory behavioral problem and it's controlling me more than um, 
I used to use it to control how I feel. I mean, that's step one is it's a problem. You know, step two is you really have to look into the why you have to change what you're doing because the consequences to your health, your family, your, you know, your work or whatever else may actually really be important to you is going to suffer, you know? And, uh, the third why is really trying to discover why it is you may have much more deeper capacity and patience and guile and wisdom and spirit and mojo and other things uh, than you've allowed yourself to believe. And that's the craziest thing about the blanket, you know, or the blankie, if, you know, in the sense of some kid holding on to its teddy bear version of a blanket. Um, we use those to protect ourselves from the world, but in, in the, I think the most profoundly, and since we talked about karma recently, in, in the sense of the most profoundly karmic joke in the universe, the things we use to protect ourselves from the short irritations in the world, protect ourselves from our vastness as beings. Mm-hmm. And then that's a, that's a crazy place to find yourself. And that's 80% of us all day, every day, <laughs> sitting on the pooper, scrolling Facebook, <laughs> going, I wonder how I should feel about myself. <laughs> well, hey, that, that's a nice picture. I like that quote. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to keep it real, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it was uh, uh, a, a bit of an eye-opener to sort of sit and discuss the idea, uh, the ideas that um, support or, is that the right word for it, feed addiction? Uh, whereas, uh, at the end of that podcast, I was sort of left, well, can you be a bit more specific? And I think that's where we, we spent a bit of time after, uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we finished the podcast sort of discussing what is it we could talk about? Uh, what sort of addictive things, uh, if we were going to give somebody a sort of a how-to or a practical idea about, uh, dealing with addictions. Um, and we came up with a pretty long list. Yeah. Oh, that was an interesting, you know, extra hour of conversation. <laughs> so they're sort of making notes. We're like, okay. So I'm not going to say that we're all screwed, but, uh, the modern world sure makes this easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, uh, in that sort of regard, I thought, um, the, the addictions we're going to talk about today are ones that, uh, I guess sort of are common every day. Um, and I, I would think that because they are common in every day, people probably don't give them much, uh, thought. So perhaps that's why we're talking about them. Yeah, I think it's also, I mean, as a clinician, when, when I sit down with people and say, well, we're going to have to start correcting some metabolic, you know, problems, uh, you know, and you can see the, the kind of glimmer in people's eyes, you know, in the sense of you've got a pill for that. <laughs> <laughs> Chinese medicine is awesome. And I'm like, uh, no, no, we don't have a pill for that. But, uh, the first thing you're going to have to do is remove the biggest metabolic, uh, kind of control, um, valves or, or things that actually maximize certain kinds of potential within the human metabolism, which is cool, but at the same time, it's not really what's going on. And they all have sort of secondary uh, damages to things like inflammation, uh, liver function, uh, sensitivity across a whole range of receptors and neurotransmitters that literally make us, um, and I'm, I'm kind of reaching with the metaphor here, but it's like being a cyborg in the sense that now you have certain kind of magic batteries that control, you know, what the cyborg thinks and feels and how it, you know, how much energy it has to run or sleep or other things. We, we've learned to actually hijack our metabolism almost the same way we would if we had external parts. It's just the parts turn out to be things like, you know, your cup of joe in the morning and your little evening nightcap and, you know, before bed and uh, whatever excessive things like uh, sugars and carbohydrates that, that may be honestly screwing with everybody's metabolism now because, you know, I mean, super easy statistic with sugar is, I think, uh, and this is in Canada, but 
1906, uh, the average well-to-do Canadian family might be able to access one pound of like commercially prepared sugar in a year. A pound in a year. Yeah. I think that would be either per family or per person in the family. Uh, It doesn't really matter, but it's a pound per family or per person per year. But now, and uh, this this is the last time I checked, uh, and this is in the States, because I don't know, I just, stats pop pop up where they pop up. I think this is 2014, is in the States now, it's about 146 or 154, somewhere in that range pounds of commercially produced sugar either by itself or in you know beverages or in foods or condiments or whatever a year per person and that's almost enough for four months of calories wow plus you're eating food on top of you know the four months of calories per year you're just choking back as basically refined carbohydrate yeah uh that's uh that's not surprising considering how the uh the standard american diet is you know sugar-coated and conveniently placed in a box or a bottle yeah, <laughs> with a big glaring neon label, <laughs> buy me. <laughs> yeah, do they have Fruit Loops in the States? I don't know. Hmm. Maybe we could talk about all the nifty chocolate bars we have in Canada that they don't have anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I know we still have lawn darts. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that? That was me actually going, oh, lawn darts. I was waiting for, I was like, that's not a chocolate bar. No, but I just thought it was funny that I think, I'm not sure if it's the entire U.S. or if it's just some parts of the U.S., but they made lawn darts illegal because some kid got impaled by a ballistic weapon that obviously was a ballistic weapon. Wow. <laughs> and instead of, you know, coming up with some saner way of solving the problem, they just said, stop. Wow. That's kind of ironic, don't you think? Oh, uh, I don't know. I just think it's just an interesting thing when you look at different countries like Canada and the States or what's going on in Europe and how we're all kind of like the same, but we all have some really weird differences. Yeah. And another, I guess the reason why my mind reached in that direction is that you look at different cultures, Western cultures, modern computer dependent, you know, economies or whatever, our relationship with things like caffeine, alcohol, and sugar across those cultures is distinctly different. Hmm. in the sense of what you're supposed to do with them and what's actually good or not or, you know. Wow. So. Well, uh, let's let's get into that. I mean, we're, we're already sort of down that sugary slope. <laughs> 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 okay, bad pun. But still, uh, why don't we take uh, the conversation into the, uh, uh, the topic of sugar and sugar addiction? So this is a bit of a geek out. And, you know, if we had the cameras set up, I think I'd probably want some kind of... Uh, whiteboard to like keep track of it all but we're not doing that so sorry folks you're either gonna have to scroll on a napkin or keep your uh you know keep your attention kind of on the metaphor because there's a lot of moving parts with this and um, i'm not going to go like insanely deep into it but i think appreciating some of the moving parts will give most people um a bit of a reality check on just how much is actually going on that a lot of us just meh it's not that interesting. We don't really care. And it's just food or sugar or, you know, maple syrup or something. So how could could it be bad? So I'm pretty sure all of us have heard the term hypoglycemia, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, you eat something that's high carbohydrate, you know, all day, every day. And then your body naturally builds up the habit of releasing enough insulin to put that carbohydrate away because that's insulin's job. And then maybe one day... Uh, you didn't eat as much carbohydrate in your body because it kind of wants to run like a very predictable, um, you know, mammal. You know, I, I wake up and this happens and then I go to the water hole and this happens and then I, you know, do whatever. 
because the body actually does build up a really interesting prediction with hormones around, you know, the clock. So, you know, say it's day 22 in a row of the same thing. And then, you know, it's day 23 and you're getting half the amount of carbohydrate. And that day is going to be, depending on how aggressively intense the hypoglycemia is, it's going to be a bad day in the sense you're going to feel energetically low. Like I can't get up and, you know, maybe do the exercise that I, I thought I, uh, or as much exercise as I did yesterday. And my mood is going to be erratic up and down. Obviously the cravings for anything that's going to make me uh, chemically more stable are going to be higher. So I'll be craving the worst things. And I mean, you made the joke about the sliding down the sugar slope mountain or whatever, but I mean, I can think of all those treats that they have that are sugar coated, like dusted with icing sugar. Your mind would look at that and just instinctually know, like, that's the thing that's going to make me happy now. Because that powdered sugar, for whatever reason, is going to go into me really quick, unless you're a person who's consumed a lot of, uh, I guess what we call like soft drinks and stuff, which would be an even faster, you know, vehicle for that. Hmm. So thing one to appreciate is that as soon as you load your body with carbohydrate, especially carbohydrate that turns into sugar rapidly, you have now told your body, um, kind of in the way you would program, say, a, you know, in the future, some automatic car, you've programmed your metabolism to expect and respond to a certain amount of those kind of foods. If you change the ratios, your metabolism is going to be mad at you, right? It might be a bit mad at you if you eat a hell of a lot more than usual, because now it's got to speed up and uh, deal with that. But it, the symptoms of that are probably going to be more like, I just feel tired. Whereas again, if you don't have enough and your body's predisposed to a certain amount, you're just going to feel crappy and moody and restless and irritable and cravy and, you know, impatient and that kind of stuff. And that's just like the basis of simple, simple, even children do this to themselves, hypoglycemia. Hmm. Yeah. No, I remember having uh, those experiences when I was a kid eating certain, uh, I don't know, pasta dishes or whatever it was my mom would make and uh, suffering uh, a food coma, like almost an hour later, I would just be like, oh no, I'm in slow motion here, need a nap. Yeah. And it's a urban myth that if you're having a Thanksgiving dinner that you're going to get really tired because of all the tryptophan in the turkey. You're tired because you just ate 15 pounds of food. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. Probably the pie and the stuffing more than the turkey. Yeah, probably. So the reason I uh, wanted to start with that is because it's pretty obvious and I think most of us can appreciate that. Uh, and that's kind of like, you could call it the gateway, not drugs so much, but the gateway metabolism into all the other things that can start to go wrong. Because they all start with a simple resilience to the, uh, say if it's caffeine or alcohol or sugar, to um, instead of being resilient to it, the body builds up a chemistry of how to deal with that as a burden. Right. So but before I go into that, I just want to also bring up that people who eat at the, uh, you know, an unnecessary volume of carbohydrates and sugars and soft drinks and stuff are profoundly affecting not only their insulin metabolism, you're affecting what's called your microbiome, like all the critters that actually make up your neurotransmitters and uh, inform your uh, metabolism and your immune system, basically how much uh, of a low-grade infection you're carrying around all the time. And unfortunately, some of those imbalances in the gut actually predispose you to more addictions to sugar and or caffeine and or alcohol and or all three. Because whatever, um, let me take a stab at this. If you've got those uh, bad bugs in your gut, they're hungry no matter what. And 
they've been bred on uh, bad sugar and they just want more of it all the time. Yep. Mm. Um, but they also produce certain kinds of metabolites and those metabolites inform you of, you know, how much of a craving you should have. And in fact, you know, when you get into the old 1980s kind of metaphor of it's all candida, which candida is, you know, there's over 50 different, uh, life forms within normal human physiology, we would put under the umbrella of candida and it covers different, you know, stages of, uh, little tiny, tiny babies up to almost a, f you know, mobile fungus, uh, version of, of that, uh, life form. Uh, at a certain threshold of candida infection, it produces enough alcohol that you could actually be pulled over and test positive for a DUI, driving under the influence, having never had alcohol in your life. And in fact, there's a true story medically um, researched and established of a guy in Japan who was charged for drinking and driving, who was a Shinto... Uh, um, lay priest or something who'd never actually had alcohol his entire life. It took him almost three years to, to refute the, the charge by proving that he had this really weird uh, systemic candida infection that he didn't know about until he got pulled over and got busted for having alcohol in his system. That's incredible. And it, it was a really unique combination because Asian people are really low in a specific enzyme to deal with alcohol, which is why it's not a bigger part of their culture. And it's why a lot of people, especially like Korean and Japanese people, when they drink, their face turns bright red because mm. they just, they don't clear uh, the the breakdown metabolites of alcohol very well. Wow. So, so, uh, so this is just somebody who's producing alcohol because of bugs in their tummy, driving down the road, probably with a big red nose going like, I don't know why I feel so tired, <laughs> you know, but eventually they tracked it down. So again, I'm just saying when we're looking at sugar and it's a good idea to always start with sugar because it's the... It's ubiquitous. You could have it all day, every day, at every meal, and, and no one would even guess. Because we're not talking just about table sugar. We're talking about carbohydrates that rapidly turn into sugar. Because everything that happens down the line around alcohol and caffeine uh, kind of follow that um, those derangements of the metabolism. Mm -hmm. Well, there's that um, uh, movie. I think it's called that sugar film or that sugar movie. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but I saw it. That was... You know. yeah, that was here in town a while ago. I'm sure if you... Oh, you, actually, I actually introduced that film. You did. I did. <laughs> That's when I realized that the, the big light that follows the people on stage doesn't follow you because I walked over to one side of stage thinking I was riling up the crowd. I'm going like, where's the light? <laughs> Michael's in the dark once again. There you go. Uh, or still. Um, Ow. <laughs> the, uh, in that film, uh, he goes through this whole process of consuming so much sugar a day for 30, oh, that's right. for 30 days, right? And on uh, and on some of the, the meals where there wasn't enough sugar, he just took spoonfuls of sugar, like white sugar, and put that on top of his food. He was eating the one scene in the film that totally um, sticks with me, uh, eating some sort of a teriyaki something for lunch. And in order to meet his sugar quota that he didn't get from breakfast, um, he took his teriyaki chicken and he put four tablespoons of sugar on top of whatever he was eating, and he ate it. Um, but that would, have, that would have been the equivalent of whatever it was he'd eaten. So it was just this, you know, visually, it was totally um, ridiculous to see somebody doing that with their food. And yet, um, I guess that's what we do when we eat, quote unquote, food that has a ton of sugar in it. You just don't see it as refined sugar, but it was the same idea. Anyways, the movie was pretty impactful in, in terms of, um, uh, I think the guy nearly died with uh, liver failure or something yeah, like no, that. Yeah, he ended up with severe kidney disease. Well, kidney. Yeah. Oh, man. And a bit of fatty liver and a few other things. Yeah. Now, that was a power, powerful show. 
And I'm glad you brought that up because I really made it visually like in your face, like this is actually what this looks like. Yeah. You know, you don't think about it, you don't see it, but you know, if you took apart, say a McDonald's meal or a, you know, some other thing that's available, like next to every gas station in the developed world, you know, you're like, oh yeah, look at what's actually in that yeah. bag of what are you allowed to call food. Uh, I'm, I don't know if you've seen those illustrations where they show uh, a food product and they show like a cube of sugar beside it to show how much sugar is equivalent to what's actually in it. Yeah, um, but I think that should be a standard thing though. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I've seen it on Facebook. I don't know how many different times people, you know, bragging about, oh, look at all the sugar that's in this. And in, uh, what is it, in a, in a can of Coke, I think there's like nine tablespoons of sugar. Uh, it's at least nine teaspoons. I'm not sure if it's tablespoons, but. Still. Still, that's more than. Yeah. Just take. Like five days. <laughs> take a glass of water and add nine uh, sugar cubes and chug that down and see how it tastes. Yeah. yeah. And do that a couple of times a day. Yeah. Yeah. Bad news. So, um, we can all appreciate hypoglycemia. We can all appreciate that, uh, anything that we overdo and sugar is a good place to start or crappy carbohydrates are a good place to start. Um, just because we do it all the time. So when you start looking at a bit deeper into the system, uh, you're already, you know, Okay, say a pretty committed, you know, carboholic or, or whatever, and you're going to keep eating high glycemic carbohydrates and or sugars, things that turn into blood sugar rapidly, which basically predisposes you to hypoglycemia and higher than normal insulin levels. So what we want to do is sort of bring our attention in on your, your typical cell. Uh, it could be a muscle cell. It could be, uh, you know, well, let's just pick a muscle cell for sure. some, something to point our, our noggins at. All cells look like planets in the sense that it's kind of like a sphere. Um, and all cells like planets, um, are covered in volcanoes. Okay. And if you picture the volcano, you know, in the sense of it's connected to something deep within the cell or the planet, and you think of, uh, a lot of receptors like maybe, um, cargo ships that take things from outside of the planet and then drop it into the volcano so that something on the inside of the planet gets what's being delivered. That's essentially how receptor sites look. So they're like little volcanoes on the surface of the planet that allow things to move from the inside of the planet out in the sense that the cell has to get rid of something. Or uh, again, the receptor or the volcano can let things in. So when you're looking at those receptors, uh, there's a lot of subtle um, activity going on. Uh, Often we would describe them either uh, in the sense of hormone signaling or electrical signaling or enzyme signaling and stuff. The controls, you know, what I would metaphorically usually call the butler, the person who opens and closes the door of the volcano, letting things in and out. So when you have higher than normal uh, glucose in your blood and insulin shows up and says, hey, put that away, its job is literally to force the glucose out of your blood into some, some other place because both high glucose and high insulin are actually destructive to the inside of your body. Hmm. So it's kind of an emergency thing. And uh, a bit of a weird metaphor, um, and there's a few different ways this is described, but... Um, one weird way to look at insulin would be, uh, as if it's the concierge of a really weird hotel. And in this hotel, as soon as you walk through the, the front doors, the job of the concierge and, and the bus boys and I don't know, all the people that work in hotels that I can't think of right now, um, their job is to grab you and your luggage and as fast as they can run you to the elevator, run you up the stairs, run you wherever you need to go and lock you in your room. 
And because it's a kind of a weird hotel, you may or may not find other people in that room. You're just one of the things that needs to get put in a room. Uh, you could say that on that level, insulin ain't so smart because it's not doing anything uh, very predictive. It's not doing anything that's really about homeostasis. It's just saying, all right, hotel manager, my job is to stuff peeps into rooms, lock the doors and keep the hallways empty. That's my job. So what starts to happen at the, the doors or the volcanoes, um, you could say is the person who's responsible for making the decision to let things in or out is kind of getting offended you know, at the new and weird and belligerent behavior of the bellboys or bellhops or I'm trying to keep this gender neutral for sense of humor and political correctness or something, but not very good at that. Um, anyway, so now, now we have a, a hotel where all the doors ha have a kind of a status or a mood or a kind of a resentment, if you will. And that resentment about being constantly told what to do, um, in ways that are not normal, at least on an evolutionary level, uh, they change the status of the receptors to become more resistant, right? So now it actually takes more bellhops to push one person through the door. Maybe because you can imagine that the hotel room or the cell or the planet is stuffed full, but it's also because the cell doorway is just like, I don't think we're supposed to have more coming in all the time. So you could say, you know, maybe there's, there's, there's the key card on the door. Well, now there's a key card and a deadbolt and two other kind of locks. Uh, and one's on the inside, one's on the outside. So the behavior of the receptor gets much more and more uh, demanding to do its job. And, and, and all the signaling molecules and all the nutrients and all the weird, you know, potentials that have to do with chemistry and electricity, they all just basically build up more and more resistance and more and more fatigue. So at a certain point, you end up in the situation where it's the actual sensitivity of the doorway or the receptor that's governing everything. And we actually call that insulin resistance. And it's people call it syndrome X or the metabolic syndrome or what the hell happened after 1986 because everything that's gone in human metabolism, metabolic, uh, you know, diseases or, or pathologies or syndromes that turn into really complex problems all have the same characteristic which is you're hypoglycemic and your insulin receptors require a lot more, you know, keys and, and, and fiddling uh, biochemical signaling to just move sugar around, right? So this is an interesting statistic, but uh, 80, not 88%, yeah, 88% of people who signed into uh, an alcohol treatment center were hypoglycemic. And once they stabilize their hypoglycemia, their addiction to alcohol actually got a lot better. So one is a direct link to the other, you're saying? Yeah, and that's kind of the point, right? So, you know, sugar is pretty simple in the sense that, okay, too much, your body knows how to deal with not enough and too much, and it can get really stubborn about it. Alcohol is a little bit different because uh, when you consume alcohol, how it moves through your body... Uh, is determined by the called the nutrient bank account of your liver. I mean, it takes quite a few nutrients to tear apart, stabilize, neutralize, and mobilize. You know, alcohol into what's called acetylaldehyde and some other metabolites. So, depending on the strength of all those, say, B vitamins and and certain really specific enzymes, how adaptable any one person is to alcohol is going to be different, hmm. and that's going to be altered by your use of sugar. And we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. But I just wanted to like bring up that into the conversation that, you know, they, they mutually hook us into each other even more. 
And then when you look at the way caffeine moves through the system, interestingly enough, it moves through the liver and causes a similar kind of imbalance to what's called your P450 cytochromic enzyme system or your phase one conveyor belt of uh, metabolic activity in the liver. So both alcohol and caffeine speed that up, which creates a burden on the rest of uh, the enzyme pathways of liver and potentially can spill off more free radicals and inflammatory substances and the more addictive metabolites into your blood because now you have even more distress on your liver, right? Because it's like the perfect storm, sugar, caffeine, alcohol, all day, every day. You're, you're, it's just going to eventually catch up with you because it, it's when you look at how all three of them interact and behave over the long term, it just gets more and more complicated around fatty livers because of too much sugar or fatty livers because of too much alcohol. You know, I'm thinking of all those uh, sweet liqueurs that I've ever had in my life, like oh. uh, Amaretto or uh, Frangelico or those sorts of things, which is basically just a... Get me a bucket, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you may not like them, but my <laughs> stomach does, or my, my palate does. Yeah, well, a lot of, I think I've tried a couple of things, when I, those things on as a bartender a long, long time ago. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, sure. But I it just, just, I mean, just based on what you're saying, I mean, you know, throwing sugar, alcohol, um, at your liver all in one shot, bad news. Or, you know, if you have, uh, what is it? Uh, Kahlua. I think that's got coffee in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That one's actually kind of fun. Anyway. <laughs> um, so if we can, in, in a kind of very loose, non- technical way just appreciate sugar caffeine and alcohol once they're through your stomach moving through your liver they disorientate liver function uh, like one plus one plus one is ten because they're all doing similar damage in similar directions where the the congestion and the uh, the derangement of the metabolism gets very compressed and very cornered mm -hmm. but the weirdest thing is around how addictive all three of these things are is you know, once you stop taking any one of these or all three of these, and you know, it's, it's a pretty heroic thing to go from a, a modern, fairly affluent lifestyle of, you know, having sugar, caffeine or alcohol almost every day to stopping all three of them at once. And for some people that's actually not possible, right? They have to get rid of caffeine and then deal with the jangly four days of migraines and then start with harm reduction, uh, around alcohol and sugar until the doses are, uh, below a certain threshold of, of by themselves, just chemical addictive uh, potential. And then it becomes like, okay, now, now that we've dosed down and gone into some harm reduction, uh, now the hard part is to actually stop taking them, you know, and just the setup for that could take some people two weeks. And again, you'd have to be pretty well, I don't know, invested in the whole process as a, or you could say, you know, butt deep in the hip, in the pit of, you know, overdoing it. Uh, to make it that hard on yourself. But there are a lot of people where step one is just, you're going to have to start, like, let's get rid of the coffee, let's get dosing down on everything else, and then go go for the really, like, the white knuckle part, which is it's going to be really hard for the first couple of weeks, if not the first month, because it takes a long time for your metabolism to reassert itself. I mean, the first four days off any of them are bad, you know, so it's just just to say that's the hard part. Uh, in that way. So if we go a little bit deeper into the, the geek out side of this, cause this is where it gets really, really interesting in the sense of like how screwed up can be for people. And also it gives hopefully people who hear that instead of feeling like, oh, well, my life's over, it's too complicated. Uh, some real, um, 
practical things to really focus in on because it's really where the rubber hits the road of the biochemistry of all these things because they do all pile up in the same way. And this is where the metaphors start to get a bit visual. So when we can look at a cell and the receptor side on the cell, allowing things in and out, when you look at the brain, it has a blood-brain barrier, which is kind of like a membrane around it, kind of like if the brain was a cell, that would be the cellular membrane that allowed things in and out with receptors. So there's a lot of chemistry involved in determining what goes in and out of the blood-brain barrier. Interesting, uh, to me anyways, is when you have higher, at least initially, when you have higher blood sugar, then you have higher blood insulin. And again, think of this in an evolutionary thing of like, oh my God, it's that one month a year when we all can all get like happy on mildly rotten fruit or something in the sense of, you know, back in the day before we figured out uh, how to actually make alcohol. That was our biggest hit was, oh my God, there's so much sugar in my system that some of it's turned into alcohol or ate some rotten fruit that might have had a little bit of alcohol in it. But uh, again, in the sense of evolution, we have only had this so rarely. So what I'm going to get into with your blood-brain barrier is something that's, you know, 100,000 years old. Uh, and in the modern world, it's turned into a really dangerous place because hmm. it was set by, you know, millions of years of behavior, not, you know, three generations of, I mean, I'm waiting for drive through, you know, alcohol at some point. Just like, why not just pour it all in? <laughs> anyway. So again, insulin and sugar levels glow up, go up. The blood-brain barrier becomes more sensitized in a specific way to what we call the, a very large um, protein transport uh, kind of vesicle thing. And the way it's usually imaged by people in the sense of metaphor is basically a bus. So say you've got one of those little tiny buses that you see kind of pulling in and out of uh, an elder care facility. You know, maybe six or ten people could sit on the bus. And you're like, oh, okay, that's the normal size for this transport thing that, that carries proteins that build neurotransmitters into the brain, right? It's, it's the, we'll call, it we'll call it the neurotransmitter bus. So the higher glucose and the higher insulin, the more seats your body builds on the bus. Because now your body's like happy. Oh, we're getting lots of carbohydrate. It must be fall. We must be having the, you know, that third squash of the month or something yummy like that. And we all get happy and we all behave differently because all the precursors for most of our neurotransmitters are now flooding into the brain, hmm. right? And then this is a, an aside, but it's meant to make a point in another way. When people consume cannabis, uh, usually more if they smoke it, but also if they ingest it orally, uh, at a certain point, your body is going to feel a kind of an itchiness. Like, you know, I, I, I know there's a potential for me to feel really giddy here. And then you get the munchies and it's usually for some kind of refined, uh, carbohydrate. Something you just chomp on and, you know, get in, get in, in there. So then the glucose and insulin go up and then all your precursors for serotonin and other neurotransmitters gets into your brain that goes up and then you're happy as, you know, a, a primate on cannabis because <laughs> you have all of the neurotransmitter, uh, material to effectively be as high as you want and, and as happy as you want, which is why people get the munchies and why the munchies make you feel higher. Hmm. So just as a, a kind of a weird example of that. So that's one way that things like, um, obviously carbohydrates and sugars are very addictive to people because it literally allows normal endogenous, naturally occurring neurotransmitters that make you more happy or, or more um, invested in your anticipations and, and your excitements and, and things like that uh, than you would be otherwise because now you have a lot more material to play with. 
when we first introduced this idea of talking about sugar and it being addictive, we talked about refined sugars. Oh, well, I mean that anything that turns into glucose. Sure. Um, and so uh, somewhere in your, uh, your metaphors, you're talking about, you know, rotten fruits and that sort of thing. Um, is what you're saying uh, equally as uh, effective to the body if you're having refined sugar versus, say, uh, a bowl of pasta, say, versus an apple? That it actually, like, yeah, I mean, at what point is there, um, is sugar actually okay for you? I don't think it's ever okay hmm. in, the, in the sense of how we use it. You know, if you go back to when people were eating fruit falling off trees in the fall, once a year, I mean, and especially if you're going to need to gain 10 pounds to get through winter and spring, that that's a benefit and that's how we adapt to do it. It's just today, I don't think there is a, a safe kind of table sugar or something you can pour on your food because most of our food is so high in carbohydrate anyway, like pasta and stuff. Adding carbohydrates to carbohydrates just seems kind of like, you know, bad, like your uh, example from that movie, you know, although the guy was having teriyaki chicken, there's already a lot of sugar in teriyaki sauce. Mm -hmm. So to add sugar on top of sugared meat, it's just, ugh. Yeah. And considering protein can turn into a carbohydrate if your liver's, you know, in a hurry to do that, it it, it could still turn into glucose. So. <laughs> you're going to be shitting out sugar cubes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so... Um, here, here we have now a blood brain barrier that's behaving, uh, as an addict and an, an addict's blood brain barrier. Cause now it needs that extra insulin, um, to mobilize neurotransmitters. So if you're not, if you're not getting the, the volume of insulin and glucose, then the transport across the blood brain barrier seems to be low. Right, so now you're experiencing what you might call like a serotonin deficiency kind of low mood. Um, and there's still a lot of, uh, there's still a lot of clinicians and researchers, myself included, who really do question the uh, depression is a serotonin deficiency, you know, thing, because there's way, way more complicated things going on. But we can say, but, you know, at the same time, but by elevating the availability of all the precursors to produce more serotonin in the body and the brain will make people, you know, generally more alert and, and more positive. So just wanted to say that it's not as simple as we want it to be. Hmm. Okay. But having said that, again, if you're changing your lifestyle, you're going to need to expect um, a sudden lower potential of, of mood, memory, focus, uh, enthusiasm and stuff like that, because the ability chemically of these proteins to move through the blood brain barrier to provide you with the substrates you need to actually function normally is going to just be gated down a little bit because the, you know, the butler of the brain, you know, he, he was, you know, running in a very specific environment and now it's not. You know, so, the, so that can create, create a lot of cravings, a lot of low mood and a lot of memories of how bad it feels to not have your happy stuff. Hmm. Right. Cause I mean, you go four or five days of just feeling dark and, 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 and really itchy on the inside. And all you can think about is whatever it is you're sure is going to compensate for that craving. That becomes your memory of your life. The, uh, the symptom that I'm familiar with is, uh, is brain fog. Yeah. And I'm sure that's you know, whatever it is, high on sugar, farting in my brain and just putting a cloud of stupidity around <laughs> my, my capacity to actually do anything, right? Yeah. That's not the medical terms, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's all the, right now, it's visual metaphor. <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, I think that gives people at least an appreciation that, you know, on the, uh, on the bigger picture of cellular function, uh, hypoglycemia is what drives sugar addiction on a secondary level. Uh, the way sugar and insulin change the behavior of your blood-brain barrier is also, I think, another clear thing that most people can, you know, image out in their mind and go, yeah, that, of course, you know, if something is controlling the access of my, my brain to neurotransmitter, you know, uh, Lego building blocks, of course that's going to affect, you know, mood, behavior, memory, sleep, focus, and your memory of you, because uh, you'll always remember yourself as someone who's, you know, adapting to your life or a person who's basically, you know, sneaking by with, you know, those extra uh, handfuls of Fruit Loops, you know, when no one's looking, you know, or whatever. So, you know, based on how you're, you're describing what the body does with, with sugar, regardless of its source being mm -hmm. something that you scooped out of a bowl or something you bit into that looked like an apple, um, I think of people that I've seen uh, over the years, you know, my whole uh, adventure in learning more about diet and nutrition and that sort of thing, um, there's a website or a YouTube channel, 30 Bananas a Day. Oh, I never actually watched that, but I saw that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these people are uh, basically fruitarians, uh, as I understand it anyways, um, or uh, vegan at the very least. Um, so is it, uh, is it bad if you just eat sugar? Like if you were to eat, like, I don't know, 30 bananas a day would be kind of horrible in my mind. But um, is, is there, is there, uh, is there a place where sugar goes that's bad based on the quality of sugar going in? versus um, like if you were to eat, you know, refined sugar, the results are going to be kind of horrible. If you were to eat fruit sugar or fruit as a whole food and what that does to the body. So uh, I think the easiest way to play that out would be with a really weird example. So when you look at two cultures that typically don't, in, in their normal uh, historical way of living didn't really have a lot of heart disease or Alzheimer's or diabetes and stuff like that. Interestingly, two examples would be uh, the Inuit people, right? Uh, they live off a lot of basically protein and fat. In fact, the, there are people who've probably had maybe a couple of cups of pine needle tea in their life in the sense of, oh, we eat plants too. <laughs> right. You know, because it's, it's, there's just not a lot of not, you know, a, not a lot of green things. Well, a lot of plant foods on, a, on an ice cap, right? So then you look at the Okinawan people who lived off mostly tubers, right? Two long-lived, relatively healthy people who don't have a, a lot of, say, diabetes and heart disease, um, who had completely disparate diets in the sense of fat to protein to carbohydrate ratios. But what's interesting about that story is if you're consistent, in the sense of having a higher carbohydrate, lower fat, you know, moderate protein diet, or a super, um, well, it's basically either a high carbohydrate and then low, moderate, low protein, moderate, low fat, or super high fat, moderate protein, and then super low carbohydrate. As long as you're kind of extreme on the extremes, either one your body will adapt to. Interesting. Uh, but you have to be consistent. It's when you start fiddling around, or the worst thing would be to try and have a really high-fat, high-carbohydrate diet and lower protein, right? Just because we, we just get jammed up that way, like badly. So, I mean, I don't have an answer in the sense of, oh, we know this is, this is always going to work for everybody, but we have come to discover from nutritional science, especially from an evolutionary perspective, humans adapt to consistency. And if you're consistent with any of these kind of proportional, you know, diet... Uh, opportunities, 
just be consistent and your body's metabolism will work itself around that. But these are diets that are pre-sugar, pre-alcohol, pre-caffeine, pre-packaged foods. Uh, and the people were highly communal and highly connected and didn't have anything to complain about except the fact that, oh yeah, you're a human and it's life or death every day. So deal. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, not even, even 200 years ago, life was way, way, way more slow, but way, way, way more real. Well, I would think that the culture in both of those places, Okinawa and, um, uh, Inuit people, you know, that's millennia, like, you know, thousands of years old. It's not just, mm -hmm. um, you know, they just put up a, uh, Chuck E. Cheese's or something like that around the corner kind of thing. They're, they're, they're not eating crap, you know, uh, fast food in their diet. No, and as well as their, their, their sort of um, uh, mindfulness around how it is they're preparing food and what they're doing around food. Like their whole lifestyle is totally different too, right? Yeah, and that brings up a really interesting thing about people who want to transit to another culture's diet. So about 15 years ago, um, maybe longer, uh, the big one on the scene was the Mediterranean diet. So when you go and you look at the Mediterranean diet in the sense of like Crete or someplace where, you know, it's an isolated island, kind of like Okinawa and people have been doing things the same way for a thousand years and there's lots of olive oil and they have these big family lunches, you know, which is the main meal of the day. And often, you know, often they might have like a, a very small, uh, little apart, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a anti-pesto kind of thing. Uh, with a, a very small bit of uh, food for breakfast and then lunch would be huge and dinner would be small and maybe they'd have some, you know, really, uh, nice homemade wine with all the resveratrol and pycnogenol and all the yummy, yummy things that you get from wine. And what's really more important than anything is, you know, when they look at the statistics for the people with a Mediterranean diet that are in their sixties and seventies, we, we forget those people have been eating that way for 60 or 70 years and their ancestors have been eating that way for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So you take somebody in, I don't know, California or something like that, who's trying to deal with obesity and heart disease. And they, they remember that, you know, their great, great grandma was from, you know, Greece or something. And they're like, I'll go on the Mediterranean diet. And they may have been eating, you know, French fries and, and, you know, Taco Bell every day up until then. But now they're going to decide, oh, I'm going to go on the Mediterranean diet. And I'm going to expect the statistics at 60 years of age, uh, of the person who's lived on an Island, you know, 25 generations eating exactly the same food. So we, when we think about changing our metabolism, uh, around big, huge things that have been going on for generations inside of cultures, you can't just co-opt them and expect the same result. I mean, so here we are living in what we would probably, I don't know, comfortably call a kind of a pretty left kind of hippie town. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the number of people that I end up working with who are, you know, Northern Canadians who may or may not have Aboriginal blood, who have somehow decided that they want to live like they're from India and Southern India. And, you know, in the sense of I'm a, I'm a pure vegan now and I just live on, you know, lentils and, you know, rice and, and cauliflower or something like that. And when you're looking at genetics and then, you know, that, that whole thing around going extreme with, with your diet, that usually works out badly for people, you know. And that brings up, so if we sort of bring the conversation back to alcohol and stuff like that, there are certain populations specifically with alcohol, especially Northern uh, European, uh, more polar kind of uh, ancestry. And the more closely you are to indigenous ancestry, the less likely you are to have a, a robust kind of enzyme for dealing with alcohol. The enzyme is called uh, ADH, which I think I have that right. Um, that actually breaks down alcohol. So some people, 
they have a very high tolerance for alcohol because like the Mediterranean diet or whatever, it's been in your system, you know, over multiple uh, generations. So that uh, enzyme is higher. And a lot of people who have a, a really robust uh, ADH enzyme, um, yeah, alcohol dehydrogenase, ADH, I'm just making sure, <laughs> um, they actually get the most fun out of alcohol. They have it, they're happy, they're laughing, they're blissful, they want to hug everybody, they're fist bumping everything, it's all great. And that that's fine. Problem with that is, is those people can become the most dangerous um, in terms of medical statistics because all of the negative side effects of uh, metabolizing alcohol are often hidden because they have such a robust enzyme to make all that stuff just sort of go away. Uh, you don't see the, the long-term harm in terms of behavior and, and stuff because, you know, you, you have the ability to turn the poison into less poisonous poison and more fun poison. Other people who don't have that much of an enzyme, say like I mentioned certain Asian populations, they just turn red because, you know, their body's flushing with the, they're trying to turn alcohol into a, what's called acetylaldehyde. And, you know, that's just not working so well for them. Hmm. Uh, other people, uh, they can produce other kinds of, of secondary metabolites that change the, the quality of the inebriation in a way that's actually much more addictive. And then you get into some really tricky things, specifically with alcohol. So we've talked how sugar can change your brain chemistry a little bit. Alcohol, because it's very destructive to the body, the gut, uh, your neurotransmitters in the gut, because alcohol is basically uh, a kind of like an antibiotic. So, you know, you know that if you eat too much sugar, you're going to feed the bad bugs and, and uh, end up maybe with candida producing alcohol or, you know, something to make it simple. When you're eating alcohol, you're eating an antibiotic. I mean, the reason why alcohol is so ubiquitous in uh, European culture is that it used to be drunk, drunk as mead uh, or ale because the water in most medieval villages throughout most of European history were septic because we didn't figure out that pooping into the well was a bad idea, you know, or, you know, knowing where your, where your water was clean, right? So people wouldn't drink water, they'd drink ale because there's just enough alcohol in, in the ale to kill the bugs. So when you're drinking alcohol, you know, in 2018, you know, refined and smart as we think we are, you're still sucking back an antibiotic, screwing up your microbiome, changing the way your neurotransmitters can be made, changing the way your immune system can understand the world, obviously changing the way your, your liver works, but profoundly diminishing your bank account of profoundly important vitamins, B vitamins like 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 12. I mean, if there's a menu for human disaster, it's a complete lack of those um, nutrients that are essential to mitochondrial function. They're essential to building neurotransmitters. They're essential to receptor sites working properly across the entire spectrum of human physiology. They're the most essential, essential substances at regulating the physiology of stress, sleep, everything. So you're basically sucking back, you know, if you're doing this every day, and I did that for a while in my life, uh, something that's in, in no way possibly not going to completely harm multiple layers of physiology. And at a certain point of damage, that's what the addiction is. And I'm going to get into that because that's a pretty wide open statement. You know, when you look at a person with certain kind of vitamin deficiencies, uh, and you look into even the research around what we now call orthomolecular psychiatry, uh, developed by a guy, uh, Abram Hoffer, Brilliant, right? Hoffer? Hoff? Anyway, this really cool guy. <laughs> I mean, he proved a long, long time ago that you can get, you can treat over 40 something percent of schizophrenics uh, with just 
uh, niacin. Right. That's like massive amounts of niacin, but within the space of a couple of months of say 3000 milligrams a day of, you know, spread out throughout the day of niacin, these people correct the neurophysiology of why they were having hallucinations or, you know, why they were, you know, so focused on, uh, the polarization and, and, and the antagonism in the world. So there's a lot of reasons why, I mean, there's one kind of alcoholism that happens, uh, and there's about three different reasons why it goes out of whack, but it's the ratio of omega-3 and omega-6 fats in the brain, right? When the, when that gets to a certain threshold of imbalance, uh, and that happens a lot, especially with people with something called pyroluria, um, you have to balance out those fatty acid profiles in the brain. And once you do, the cravings for uh, some kind of relief, and obviously the cravings for alcohol, they just go away. Pyloria is um, low stomach acid, right? Uh, no. Uh, pyroluria is a clearance disorder which builds up a, a metabolite in the blood called a cryptopyrrole, which binds to magnesium and zinc and B6 and B5. So they make you deficient in all the most essential minerals and stress-tolerant uh, B vitamins, making you stress-intolerant. And most people with pyroluria in their 30s, 40s, and 50s become more stress intolerant and usually become the cat lady or the weird, you know, hoarding hermits who can't deal with people because the stress of dealing with people is too intense because this pyroluria uh, metabolite, again, gloms onto or binds to all these, you know, stress uh, physiology balancing uh, compounds. So if you can't balance out stress uh, physiology and the momentum of stress physiology, Every week, every month, every year, your projection into the future of a worsening day impendingly happening to you is going to be proven true because you haven't treated the underlying disorder. So now you're basically walking around profoundly nutrient deficient. And that's 40% of people who have a measurable amount of pyroluria. Maybe it's only a third of that 40% who actually has it badly enough to require some kind of treatment if they actually figure it out. But there's a huge amount of people in the world who are just a little bit edgy and weird and rather spend time alone because they don't have enough B6 and B5 to handle other people. I'm just going to pause you there for a second. My mind is just racing with uh, trying to diagnose. And quickly, why else wouldn't you want to drink when you can't handle anybody's stuff? Well, okay, <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine who's been uh, suffering with alcoholism for years and has been on and off of the wagon for years, um, is exactly like that. He's totally that guy um, who, um, I think his last run, he was four months, he was dry, sober. Um, we had a uh, meeting to attend, uh, the both of us, uh, something else we're volunteering with here in town. And um, when I went to go pick him up uh, that day, um, he, had, he, he was drinking. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? He says, oh, don't worry about this. You know, this is, this is just me, you know, uh, coping. I'm like, okay, but you've, you know, making air quotes, coped before where you've actually slid off the deep end and hurt yourself and family and da 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 You know, like I was really worried for him, but he was actually, um, in his mind, um, you know, taking something as innocuous as like a baby aspirin just to help him deal with actually going to the meeting. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to say that that's exactly what was going on for him, but as you say that, I'm like, you know, transposing your story your, or your, sorry, your ideas with the story that I have with my friend and just thinking, wow, maybe he's just uh, missing a whole lot of B vitamins in his diet. Yep. And this is kind of a relevant 
to our conversation, but it's super relevant to this part of the conversation. If you're a person who in the past has really overdone the uh, use of alcohol, be very careful with the use of acetaminophen. You know, so aspirin's a different molecule, but a lot of people uh, assume that anything Advil or uh, ibuprofen or any of those things is an aspirin, right? Um, if you've really overdone one of the enzymes that gets uh, damaged with overuse of alcohol, um, you may actually give yourself some really serious, serious problems if you use acetaminophen for pain. Because you, once your liver is, liver is damaged in that way, acetaminophen is the worst thing for your liver. Like, it's the worst thing. It's wow. even worse than alcohol. Wow. Anyway, so... On that yeah. cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we, I think we can basically say, yeah, we understand that sugar can be addictive on, on a whole range of... Uh, uh, chemical s uh, sequences from, you know, the point at which you eat it to the first bloom of insulin to the insulin resistance to the blood-brain barrier problem. One thing I didn't uh, get into, which is also important, uh, just with sugar is at a certain threshold, however, super chronic high insulin level will change the receptor sites in your cells enough that they can't actually absorb tryptophan, which turns into serotonin. So at the beginning stages, you're like, woohoo, this is awesome. You know, I, I feel uh, way better because of the use of alcohol or, or carbohydrate. And at a certain point, now you can't actually get that magic boost in the tryptophan turning into serotonin, turning into, you know, a positive state. Because now tryptophan can't move into the membranes because at a certain point of insulin resistance, moving that uh, amino acid into the cells becomes harder. Hmm. Right. And then that, trying to explain that would take about five minutes. And I think I would really need a chalkboard to make it make sense. But I'm just saying that's one of the kind of like short-term wins, long-term grinding really things that suck. Because now the thing that used to make you happy isn't working. And you need more of those little, you know, bellhops running around your hotel, stuffing everything into rooms to just feel normal. Never, never mind, woohoo, I feel awesome. Wow, that's actually kind of scary. Yeah. So again, this is the problem with, with any of these things. It's like the universe is going and saying, yeah, yeah, you're allowed to have fun for a couple of weeks. After that, though, it's going to suck. And after that, it's going to cost you. And after that, it's going to kill you. Hmm. You know, that might be decades. Right. But the universe definitely wants us to have fun. The universe just, she turns out to be a bit of a harsh mistress in the sense of, hey, 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 now <laughs> get back to work and take care of your family. Yeah, sure. Um, the, the, the one thing we haven't... Uh sort of gotten into is the idea of caffeine. Yeah, we're going to come right back to that. Okay. So I just wanted to also say that um, keep in mind that addictive behavior is compensatory and we can't get into all the fiddly biochemical pathways, I don't think, without uh, visual help. But people who also have uh, very measurable food allergies are also about twice as likely to become alcoholics because the stress and the inflammation and the irritation and all, all of the things that go on with different kinds of food allergies that are in a way kind of like a hidden stressor. So your body's like, you know, I'm going to get divorced, go bankrupt and have to deal with an alien attack all the time now, <laughs> you know, because on a certain level, it could even be some like multiple chemical sensitivities where you walk by someone with, you know, the wrong kind of hairspray and now you're like totally addled and, you know, jangly and irritated and then you can't think straight. And then you think, you know, I just need to go down and sit down and, you know, have a couple of strong gin and tonics and, and whatever and, and try and get into a state that's more familiar. 
And when you can calm your body down, say with something like alcohol, the overt distraction and distress of that, you know, hairspray induced allergic reaction doesn't seem as bad. I'm not suggesting alcohol is better than an antihistamine. I'm just saying that's one of the weirder things that hooks people in. Right. Right. And there's a really funny thing about alcohol and sugar. Um, when you really get into the first like 20 minutes of the whole thing, there's a bunch of things that go through your brain, brain called catecholamines, right? Which is you're excited, you're a bit euphoric, you're, you're attentive, you're, you're kind of into whatever, uh, because of how alcohol blunts certain frontal cortex things, you're a lot less inhibited. So you're suddenly smart, funny, good looking and deserve to be standing on the table with a lampshade on your head. Cause that just makes perfect sense to you all of a sudden. So again, you know, you got that 20 minutes of woohoo. And that woohoo is based on, again, catecholamines, which are kind of like the, the short-running burst of adrenaline and epinephrine and norepinephrine and stuff that are, are compounds that are, are stress hormones, but they're the excitatory problem-solving stress hormones. So that's what caffeine is. The, uh, my house is on fire, I should do something about this kind of stress? Well, it's maybe instead of your house is on fire, which is, oh yeah, the fireplace is lit and I have my list of to-do things and suddenly my focus is clear. I have my, you know, action item, one, two, three, four things. Nothing's distracting me from getting this done. After about 30, 40 minutes, uh, with, um, well, more with alcohol, then the body shifts the other way, which is now you're kind of in this mildly kind of like tired um, mildly sedated, uh, kind of impatient, don't really like being, you know, offended or interrupted or whatever, because you're no longer hyper-focused and cool. Now you're just a little bit edgy and kind of tired and like things just piss you off more. <laughs> and, and you're, you're going to be more short-tempered because you've gone from woohoo to kind of like meh, chronic stress physiology. Caffeine does the same thing depending on the source of caffeine, right? So if I took a black coffee, I'll get 20 to 40 minutes of being pretty damn smart and and focused. And then a couple of hours of, you know, kind of just feeling a little bit jangly, like I'm not sure if I'm really focused or if I'm just agitated. And then you get really tired and then you get grumpy. Right. So caffeine isn't perhaps addictive chemically in the same way. This is a real serious hook or that it screws around with neurotransmitters in a way that makes you feel dependent on the munchies to get higher, you know, or sugar to feel normal. Uh, caffeine is just, uh, you might call it the most state addictive thing that we have because you know, and I know that if I go and have a, you know, if it's a mocha or a coffee or a black tea or a green tea, uh, you know, I'll have a predictable, depending on what I have as a beverage, a predictable 20 minutes to two hours to three, four, five hours of shift in state. And I'm not trying to sell people anything, but if I was as a person to commit to using caffeine, I would always choose matcha not mate, mate is a very different plant, but matcha because the caffeine in matcha isn't really uh, a mature, aggressive kind of caffeine. So it does make you feel a bit alert, a bit focused, um, and a bit more available to the world. And it lasts about six hours and it doesn't have the jangly ups and downs and stuff. No, but you have to throw back a hot beverage that smells like a goat shit in your cup. Well, it depends on what you mix it with. I mean, <laughs> you could get a little bit fun with some <laughs> other things. Uh, matcha is that uh, Japanese tea. It's kind of green and frothy and there's like a whole process to putting it together. Well, if you want to be, I'm not going to say culturally appropriative, but if, if you're going to decide that the only way to consume um, that form of stimulant is to do it like a Japanese tea ceremony, then 
go go for it have fun if you have that kind of time but the, the uh I, I just remember uh when i first heard of this stuff the first time going out to a, a coffee bar and asking for that and having the uh, barista on the other side just sort of give me this look of like oh, man <laughs> and then having to go through this whole thing you know i was just keeping my eye on him because i'm sure he was about to spit in whatever it was. <laughs> and then after he served it up, I was like, did he spit in this? Because this doesn't taste good at all. It's a very grassy kind of taste. It's right? very grassy kind of taste. Yeah. yeah. But, um, and then this is kind of a, maybe an interesting way to fold us into the other side of the conversation. So when I have matcha, I have it with coconut milk and some true cinnamon. Okay. And the person I was living with at the time, we used to walk down this road to just stand at the, it wasn't a beach like, you know, Hawaii, but it was a sandy park next to the lake we live near. <laughs> so we could walk down there and sit there and have our little matcha. And she'd make fun of my little frou-frou girly drink. <laughs> She's like a gymnast athlete woman, but, uh, cause she just thought it was funny that I'd go through the time of like blending up my matcha and then adding my coconut milk and adding my cinnamon. And we'd walk down the hill and she's got her, you know, badass, you know, locally roasted coffee from wherever. And I'm <laughs> sipping my <laughs> frou-frou. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the reason that I, I bring that up is, um, you know, cause this podcast is meant to be like responding to these addictions, not just explaining the chemistry. Sure. And the responding to the, the actually kind of happens all at once if you wanted to, cause they're all hooked in with all of the same chemistry and I'm not trying to sell people stuff, but <laughs> starting with something like a timed released, very slow kind of caffeine that doesn't mess with you the way that hard caffeine does seems like a good kind of harm reduction because it's the most painful to stop, like physically painful. You mean to stop cold turkey? Yeah. If, if you're drinking a lot of coffee every day and you stop, you will have four great, four days of like serious migraines. If you're one of those people who drinks that, uh, 32 ounce supersized mug of coffee from 7-Eleven. I'm not sure they actually serve coffee in those places. Oh yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I just, I guess I, I live in this place where we get hand roasted beans <laughs> that are carried here by, I don't know, trained monkeys from Malaysia or something. I don't know. It's pretty fancy stuff. I can't imagine going to like McDonald's or 7-Eleven or Tim Hortons and I, I had somebody, buying coffee. I'm just I, like, Ugh. I had somebody tell me once that the coffee at McDonald's is really good. And I said, well, what makes you think it's just coffee then? Because <laughs> yeah, really? coffee in and of itself doesn't taste good. Yeah. And McDonald's, you know. They'd never add anything to make you want to come back. There, there's a list of ingredients <laughs> to the coffee at McDonald's. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, not wanting to piss off all of the people listening to this about all that stuff. And our listenership just doubled. Yeah. <laughs> or anyway, um, so the reason I brought up the matcha thing is that you really want to begin by uh, what's called harm reduction. And that's by reducing the aggressiveness of whatever caffeine you're using and by adding some kind of fat to it, which is why bulletproofing... Uh, things like coffee or tea or matcha, uh, and bulletproofing is basically emulsifying it with about a tablespoon of fat per cup of, you know, beverage. So the fat basically, um, slows down the rate at which we absorb and utilize things like caffeine, right? So it's like, okay, this, there's going to be a theme here, harm reduction. How can we dose down before we get into the black and white of cold turkey actually stopping? Hmm. Right. So with, with caffeine, choose something less violent, add lots of fat and gradually reduce the number of doses per day. And then the number of doses per week. And eventually you're going to get hopefully to a place where you can go a few weeks with zero external caffeine just for your, you know, your body to self-correct its metabolism. I mean, when we do that 10 weeks to abundant health, uh, cleanse that I do twice a year. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're looking for, 
um, some accountability partners and a bookend kind of like beginning ending 10 week framework to help you deal with any kind of metabolic or addictive issue. That's sort of my, my flagship of, you know, programs for people out there. You can put a link down in the show notes. Okay. And, uh, and again, that's just to give people that sense of it takes time and you really do want to focus on correcting your entire metabolism. This isn't just as simple as caffeine, alcohol, and sugar. Sure. So if we know the step one is to dose down your caffeine and to get off of it, check. And that's going to change the aggressiveness of your addiction to your own catecholamines. Cause at least now you're not, you know, hitting, you know, it's not pedal to the metal and then foot on the brakes, right? It's just a nice happy idle. Right. Because then your sensitivity with uh, both sugar and alcohol towards that catecholamine uh, uh, rush in the brain is going to be less intense because you're not using caffeine to like mess with it even more. So when you're looking at the next thing, which would be getting the hypoglycemia down, and yes, if you're an alcoholic listening to this going, wow, I can still drink. This guy's great. <laughs> like, hold on. <laughs> Uh, but you do want to start with the aggressiveness of the metabolism and then the hypoglycemia. Because if almost 90% of alcoholics have clinically provable hypoglycemia plus a bunch of food allergies and or things like pyroluria or other nutrient deficiencies, that's not going to turn itself around with a couple of B vitamins and a, you know, a high five, five to your friends for getting right with yourself. It's going to take a while to repair that. So as you're maybe dosing down in the sense of harm reduction or high glycemic carbohydrates and obviously any kind of additives, sugar, uh, all the fake sugars are poison. So they're actually, most of the things that end in OL, like um, um, uh, sorbitol and stuff like that, they're double bonded alcohol sugars. They're made by taking two alcohols and stuffing them together with a little bit of a headlock. Sorbitol, um, so, Yeah, when you're xylitol, digesting them, they break down into some really, really molotol. nasty metabolites and alcohol. Wow. So <laughs> just if you're wondering why you're, you know, licking the inside of your sweet and low, it's because, yeah. Anyway, so as you get your hypoglycemia sorted out uh, with what you're consuming, you want to do that over time. You know, get, get rid of the sugar, get rid of the pasta, try and find more uh, complex carbohydrates, mix your carbohydrates with fat. If you're going to have rice, eat white rice, make jambalaya, uh, risotto, paella. So again, you're eating some carbohydrate that's the least irritating in the sense of food allergies and mix with the most fat so that um, the spike of blood sugar and blood insulin is the lowest and slowest you can create. Mm -hmm. And then, and or even... Uh, right now, <laughs> the more you can start doing to uh, increase the sensitivity of your insulin receptors, the faster you're we're going to reduce the stress, uh, like the instinctual gnawing toothache-like stress of hypoglycemia. And some of the easiest ways to improve uh, receptor site sensitivity besides a low glycemic diet and eating lots of fat um, over time, it takes time, good month. Um, things like, uh, chromium piconolate. Say that again, chromium piconolate. It's a specific kind of, uh, over the counter supplemental chromium that specifically can, uh, affect the receptor sites for insulin. Right. So they're more sensitive, more responsive, uh, something called inositol or inositol, depending on where you grew up. Um, that's usually done as a, it's a white powder and then trying not to have a tongue in cheek moment here about podcasts on addiction and <laughs> scoops of white powder, but, uh, inositol, uh, again, regulates a whole bunch of receptor site, uh, sensitivity and function. 
And usually at one teaspoon three times a day, you can manage most kind of big carbohydrate cravings and, you know, the kind of balancing blood sugar issues. Some people go up to 15 teaspoons. A day. Three times a day. Wow. Of inositol to manage hard heroin addiction. Now, I'm not recommending that, and I'm not suggesting that's the safest way to go, but people who have had some familiarity with using that compound and then deciding to try and apply it to uh, medical situations, maybe as more uh, overt and complicated as, as harder chemical addictions, it still helps people. Wow. And then there's uh, True Cinnamon, uh, which um, I think it's the Ceylon Cinnamon is the True Cinnamon and Cassia Cinnamon is not. The cassia cinnamon will eventually actually damage your liver. So if you're wanting to use cinnamon as an add-in, like I was adding into my matcha and my (laughs) less tough guy drink than I thought it was, um, that's why the cinnamon is in there, right? Because if you can get in that um, in in a beverage or uh, you could put it in little gel caps or whatever, the true cinnamon also can help sensitize, resensitize uh, insulin receptors. So by going lower and lower on the glycemic index, adding more fats to your carbohydrate foods, uh, and then taking supplements that are known to improve uh, insulin receptor sensitivity. And again, that's that whole month. Like your whole month is like, okay, we're going to get down on the caffeine. We're going to get down on the carbohydrates. We're going to start maybe the harm reduction with the alcohol. Right, because you can't do them all at once, and if if you're really hooked into all three of them in a heavy way, and a lot of people are, so again, less caffeine, then less sugar, and then balance that out, and then the alcohol thing comes up, and just like anything else that's an addictive process, what you're wanting to focus in on is harm reduction. So you basically just have to make the really really hard discernment, and this is where the like the white knuckled uh, addiction part of uh, getting through alcohol. Uh, if you can do it on your own or with your family or with friends or accountability buddies or, you know, invite someone over to sleep on your couch where you lock yourself in your bedroom and actually give up the bottles you have stuffed between the mattresses or, you know, whatever. Trying to be funny because I think last time we talked about this, we were making jokes about people stuffing bottles in laundry baskets. But really important thing with alcohol is, you know, you want to get down to half the amount of alcohol you're having. And a lot of us... Uh, myself, I could say I'm an alcoholic, although I don't have any right now. Um, and I was never that hardcore about it, but I definitely know that genetically, if I decided to get too friendly with that again, it could very easily destroy my life. So, um, I'm saying this from experience. You want to make sure you're, you're basically aware that you have a ritualized relationship with ending your day. Unless you start your day with alcohol. And if that's what's going on, then you should probably be in a treatment center because you're going to need that much more help. Right. But if you're a person who's doing, you know, your, your typical high functioning thing where you come home and, you know, drink more than you should every day, what you want to do is keep doing the same thing. You just want to change the volume of alcohol per serving, right? Because if you can't do that, then you need to go to a treatment center because you can't manage your choices. You are chemically addicted to the point where you will cheat yourself. Right. Right. But if you can say, uh, I come home and, you know, let's say from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. I have three, you know, whatever your, you know, poison turns out to be. Uh, I guess that uh, bit of tongue-in-cheek use of the word, your <laughs> what's your poison suddenly sounds a lot worse than it used to. Um, you want to try and get into a kind of a ritualized relationship where you can sit there at your, you know, dinner table or your coffee table or, you know, your lazy boy or whatever and say, I need to change my association with this behavior while doing this behavior. 
Right. Right. And it's the same thing with people who are addicted to heroin. You know, they're often in a lockdown kind of like treatment facility because that kind of addiction is a lot harder to honestly, consciously have any control over. Um, they'll put people in a room with their whole kid and they'll, they'll set the whole thing up as if they're going to actually like, you know, you know, I'm not actually sure how to take heroin, watch movies, but there's a spoon and then there's a thing. And so, um, a person would go through the ritualized behavior of all of that. And that by itself has a huge amount of effect on the dopamine thing. And we've mentioned this probably a couple of times in the past on the show, but dopamine is not the reward neurotransmitter. It's the anticipation of reward neurotransmitter. So if you can go through, uh, the ritualized behavior of, I'm going to pour myself a drink and add this and squeeze a lime in and put a little umbrella in it or whatever it is that makes you happy, you're satisfying, you know, say five out of six of the things that would be involved in that, you know, practice or that ritual. So although the alcohol volume per serving is going down, hopefully consistently and measurably, your permission to sit down and have a fizzy cool beverage, if that's your thing, is still allowed. And then eventually you're going to get to a place where the actual chemical attraction and addiction is diminished enough that you actually will intuitively just kind of know, you'll, you'll, you'll literally feel it in your face. Like, you know what? Actually, no, I don't need to do this right now. And that's the most important day because when you actually give yourself permission to stop, stop. You've dealt with the catecholamine thing with excessive caffeine. You've dealt with the hypoglycemia, which is 90% of it for almost everyone in the sense of the itchiness to any kind of craving. You've gone through the harm reduction in the sense of dose of alcohol. You're still having your whatever, you know, evening ritual is, but now you know from some deep sense of your yourself that you don't need to keep doing this. And then you need to get up and walk outside and find something else to do with your evenings or your time, um, go to a class you know, do something so that you can replace the memory of yourself, especially on a stressful day with another way of behavior. Because if you don't have another way of compensating, you are going to go back to the, what worked in the past, even if it's in the long term really, really bad idea. I would think that the psychological pull to uh, do something familiar, um, is probably more, well, I guess that's how you've been describing it. The, the sort of whole thought process of around the, what you're thinking and feeling around something is infinitely more addictive than the actual substance itself. And if you can break that, then you've beat it. Uh, but even able to say that out loud, hmm. I mean, that, that's an, um, an immensely practical and, and potent thing to be able to say, which is, I, I, I mean, and I'll put this out there, and, and if you're listening to this and, you know, you're feeling a little, I don't know, chilled, <clears throat> you know, in the sense that, you know, this is actually about you. Imagine if you, for whatever reason, had gone on a trip, you know, in your car to visit a friend and it was a six hour drive. And for some reason you got stuck between two avalanches. Well, I live in the mountains, so that's like an actual possibility for me. <laughs> that actually happened recently. With, I know. <laughs> with mudslides, yeah. So, you know, there you are stuck without any of the things that you are supposedly chemically addicted to and you need to, or else your life is going to implode. Well, you know, you could chew on your seatbelt and yell at your hitchhiker friend or whatever, but you are now stuck in the mountains and you will not find alcohol or caffeine or sugar. Well, outside of tree bark, well, the inner membrane of tree bark, but. <laughs> Grab your hammer and start tapping maple trees. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But. I know there's sugar in here somewhere. But this is the hardest thing for people to rationally kind of just like admit to themselves. You would probably, I mean, there are severe, uh, chemical addictions where if you stopped, you could die, mm -hmm. but you can usually tell that because you wouldn't have a mirror anymore. You'd be living on the street. 
right? In the sense of like, you know, in the sense of a mirror, not because we're cute or not, but a person who's that far into addiction, is going to look like someone who's that far critically into addiction, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if you still have access to things like cell phones and podcasts, you probably are, are not having taken this so far that if you got stuck in the mountains without your substances, you wouldn't explode. You just have some really crappy days in a row. And I'm in no way suggesting that we put ourselves through that unless you can't stop. And if you can stop, then my recommendation is a minimum 28 day full on. Here's the keys. <laughs> Please do not let me out of here. You know, and that's the minimum. There's some sort of physiological reason for that too. Yeah. Well, I mean, most addiction, the hard part is four days. And then the second hard part is 24 to 26 days. So, uh, 28 days is just sort of a nice, you know, good average that covers most people's kind of panic uh, areas. People who have a lot more trauma who, and we talked about this the last time about uh, people who are prone to scarring and branding and putting cigarettes out in their leg or whatever, uh, who have a kind of loathing to themselves and to life. Uh, those people are not dealing just with addiction. They're, they're dealing with a, you might call a species level kind of PTSD. You know, whether they were, they were profoundly tormented and ritualized and ritually abused by a malevolent, you know, bad person, even if it was your mom or dad or somebody, which is terrible, but these, these things happen. If you've gotten to the point where you're doing those kind of things and your, you know, your life has become that much coiled up inside. If you don't have other recourse, if it's Qigong or yoga or meditation or therapy or, uh, you know, other avenues of recourse, then it's usually three months. Wow. That's uh, a pretty, uh, I mean, I was going to say short, but a uh, long sentence, in-depth sentence. You know? those, those are just the numbers, bro. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, when, 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 uh, when you say 28 days, um, I don't know, a month is 30 or 31 days, right? Maybe 28 days is just the number that they picked up <laughs> just well, to make it, it sound like it's not really a month. <laughs> uh, well, no, it's, I mean, it's from day 21 till 24, that's when the insulin receptors actually begin to organically self-repair. It takes that, that I was going to say that long. I guess that's not really that long a time, is it? No, three weeks. It, start, it starts in three weeks, which is when the cravings are the worst. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be kind of just overarching with the conversation and give people some things to hang some importance on. Like, oh yeah, the receptors, that's a big deal. Brain, blood-brain barrier, big deal. You know, chronic, severe malnutrition of stress, uh, adaptive nutrients, especially like B5 or something like that. You're, you're not fully functioning organically. So if you're going to start being mad at yourself for having bad habits and your biochemistry is already frazzled and literally limping, let's all take a step back here and realize our entire society is running... Um, in a way that's like very permissive to this whole process. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost encouraging of it. Uh, feeding it. You know, so, and, and I'm not going to go off on, you know, anything else because we've probably looked about an hour and 20 now, but just to give, I just really want to give people a sense that whatever it is that you feel um, as a food or as a substance or, you know, as a beverage is necessary for you to get through your day, well, right now it is. And there's a reason for that. And if you keep doing it, there's going to be a reason why eventually you're going to have to change what you're doing. So I'm doing my best right now to give you some uh, ideas and some information to hopefully inspire you to begin that process now. You know, and if you're already pretty deep in the pit and you realize you're, you know, way past the ability to control this yourself, 
Um, and we mentioned this, I think, in the, in the last podcast too. I mean, just sitting in an AA meeting and not doing any kind of actual deep throw or organic treatment gives you about a 25% chance of, of recovery. Whereas, you know, either going to meetings and or going to a therapist and doing all the organic uh, therapies like, you know, modifying receptor site sensitivity and repairing all the nutrients that are lost um, over time, that's a 75% chance, you know, of a complete you know, recovery and maintaining sobriety and you know, actually being healthy for the rest of your life. So, you know, this is kind of like a little dashboard light podcast, you know, beep. Uh, if this has actually like got you really concerned and, you know, in the metaphor of a dashboard light, pull over, pop the hood, take a look at yourself, look at your behaviors, your decisions, your excuses, your past, the, you know, all the moving parts of your life and just say, is it time for you to let this all kind of, kind of fall to the ground and pick up the pieces and, and put them back together and, and move ahead in a, in a wiser way? Because that, that's really the only first step is, yes, things are going to fall apart a little bit and then you're going to put them back together a little bit. And like anyone else uh, in the world, you're going to feel pretty embarrassed about it. And maybe the last thing I'll say uh, about this, you know, we, we live in a time, I think, when most of us are kind of assholes in, yeah. in, in, the, in the sense that we're just more likely to be abrupt and short and judgy and, and kind of pushy because it's kind of a, a source of uh, fraternal or maybe the fraternal is the wrong word, more like kind of a, a college-like attitude where we're, we're, we're fun and we're hip and we're goofy, but we're allowed to kind of spank each other a little bit and piss each other off and um, keep each other kind of riled up or, or to challenge each other in some way. And, and that's a really great thing when you're young, you know, but when it comes to making some really big life or death choices that may have to do with whether or not you're actually competent to raise your children in this moment right now, you don't want to be thinking and talking to yourself as if you're some kind of like gangsta wannabe kind of kid who wants to like be, you know, badass and tough and, and, you know, abrupt with yourself. Cause you need a grandma now. You don't need a punk, hmm. you know. In in the whole sort of uh, resolution of addictions, uh, for myself, um, it's interesting how you talk about um, at certain points the body does what it needs to do in order to help. Um, and I always found that to be really encouraging. That no matter what I was thinking, that my body would um, just do what it was supposed to do. I mean, I'm breathing right now and I'm not really telling myself to breathe, right? That, that, that whole thing about like when you said between 21 and 24 days when all of a sudden insulin receptors start getting better. Um, that's really uh, something that I've found for myself, knowing that type of information really gave me the sort of courage to sort of, oh yeah, right, I just need to make it till that day. And then, you know, I, I need to get out of my own way so that I can heal myself. And the only thing I need to do is get out of the way because everything else is going to happen even without me. Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the big grandma trust thing is, yeah. you know, we, we can curl up in the lap of wisdom and patience, um, and, and, and wait it out a little bit. And, and that's the hardest part of this. Cause I mean, all addiction is essentially impatience. Hmm. You know, I mean, obviously the chemistry of it can get pretty intense, but. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's important to, to sort of say that the idea of taking care of oneself is, uh, something that we, Either we don't know what we're doing or we abuse that in some way or we totally screw with it on purpose. You know, like there's lots of different ways that we actually come to, you know, once my eyes open and I get up during the day, what am I going to do to 
navigate this body in my life until I go to bed. And uh, I, 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 I like what you say about having a, a sort of a, a loving sort of approach to it. Uh, you know, you say grandmother, you know, I never knew my grandparents, so I'm going to put somebody else in that sort of picture, but I get the idea, right? Well, I mean, if you were to pick a spiritual teacher, who do you think you'd pick? Huh. Um, I mean, there's like Thit Nhat Hanh, Eckhart Tolle, Pema Chodron, Brene Brown. I don't know if she'd say she's a spiritual teacher, but she's definitely helping people sort out what it's like to have a mind. <laughs> you know who I think of? Who? I think of my first dog. <laughs> <laughs> that dog was the sweetest, most gentlest thing. And uh, loved me to bits no matter what. Now, you know, I'm not going to pray to the dog. Well, I meant not thinking spiritual in the sense of prayer, I guess. You know, we don't really, I don't think we have a word in, in, in the West for like finding a wisdom teacher who's uh, an ally for a life that you can trust to 80% of the time say something nice and helpful and 20% of the time, you know, poke you in the ego for being a twit. Yeah, that was my dog. Yeah, oh, your, cool. Yeah. I guess the reason I brought that up is a lot of a lot of people when I ask them that question, you know, if you had to pick, you know, of all the people in your life that you would think of as kind of mentors and mm. people out there trying to make a difference in the world, the likelihood you're going to pick, uh, you know, a 28 year old um, entrepreneur who's obviously just loving the attention and the money. Uh, and addicted to the attention and the money is probably not the person you want to rely on for the deep patience and wisdom it takes to get through addiction when they're addicted to fame, attention, and money. Yeah. Whereas you find someone who, you know, shows up once in a while and releases a new book of poetry and says, I'm going to be back in a while, but I'm going to go and meditate now because I'm actually doing the work, folks. You know, that that's someone who you can more more likely rely on and and it isn't that we're, when I say that, it isn't even that I'm thinking about, you know, going out of your way to find a spiritual teacher or mentor. It's really more about finding metaphors for who you're trying to become in yourself. Hmm. Should I focus on being the 28 year old, you know, attention addict? Uh, well, with respect to addiction, probably not. Right. Whereas, you know, the patient old person who looks a bit wise and, you know, you know, two or three times bitten and not so shy you know, that person's going to be able to sit with you through whatever happens. I suppose the, uh, you know, me saying that it was my dog, I, I don't mean to sort of belittle what you're saying, but in in my experience with that pooch, it was totally that, something that was uh, all wise and all knowing. And the voice that I heard in my head that was that dog's voice um, was totally that person who would be, uh, I don't know how to describe it, uh, mentoring you know, steering me in the right direction and, you know, uh, giving me grief if I, if I wasn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned more from that dog um, about myself um, and the dog was just being himself. You know, there, there's, anyways, that's another podcast to get into the whole uh, layers of, of what I learned from that pooch, but I get yeah. it. Like, you know, being able to sort of um, uh, have some person or something in my mind that sort of makes me reflect back on how it is I'm behaving and how it is I'm treating myself. And how you're treating them. Yeah. That's the only way you get to know you is how you treat everybody else. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I totally learned a lot about myself <laughs> with that dog. <laughs> yeah. But, but again, if, if, and I'm trying to bring the, the, the conversation back to the, the people listening to this who are probably trying to figure out addiction, what you're doing with addiction is controlling you with a very immature version of you. And I'm saying that from experience. I'm not saying that to be judgmental. Right. So if you're going to find another version of you that isn't an immature version of you, you're going to have to find a mature version of humans or dogs or somebody out there and learn how to 
treat that person uh, the way that person would treat that person or that person would treat you and then become that person or at least your version of that person and treat yourself that way. And then you're not going to need short-term, you know, biochemical control, you know, uh, strategies in your life because you're just going to be like, yep, I'm the one who has to sit here and, you know, let the, let the pieces fall and pick them up and, you know, start again tomorrow. Hmm. Cause, cause that's every day. Yeah. You know, but, but it's the impatience to control, uh, anything, you know, that gets us into trouble and. I don't want to keep going back to this, but it keeps coming up in my conversations in, in day-to-day life. But, you know, that, that's a big part of this whole thing with what Jordan Peterson's been trying to make sense of in the world. It's like, well, you know, maybe you should just work on you, you know, clean up your room, pick up the pieces and recognize that's all we get to do. You know, well, life is this, this process of problem solving. And if you're not the one solving the problem about who's solving the problems, you're the victim of whoever it is you've hired to solve your problems. Hmm. And if you've hired, you know, a, chemically addicted person in the sense of the adolescent you that learned how to get through, you know, being socialized in that way, you know, that's, that's your spiritual teacher. You know, that's the person who's your, your go-to helper. You know, and it's no, for me, it's no accident that AA is such a big thing for people because you need to go and listen to people's drunk logs and, you know, hi, I'm Joe and I'm an alcoholic and here's my 15 minute story of everything that went wrong because, you know, I was an alcoholic. Cause then you start hearing all the other stories and then you hear the wisdom people who've been there for 20 years going, yep, here's my 20 year chip. And, you know, been watching you guys flail for a while, but you'll, you'll get here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause we, we all want to know that, I think we all know intuitively that there is a wise patient elder within us that's just waiting for us to, to like, you know, get, get through the, the hoop jumping we need to, to get there. You know, and I, I will say this, I mean, I grew up in a slightly different culture. So for me, the aspiration is to become an old wise medicine person, an elder with, you know, gray hair and stories to tell in the modern world. I think most of us are supposed to want to be 22 year olds that look like we're 18 and have six pack abs and erections that never stop hmm. or something in the sense of what, what sort of the, the modern superficial Western, you know, mindset or culture is about. And that's a great thing to have fun. I mean, it's like when we talked about the, the karma story, right? why not go to the beach and have a party? Yeah. There's a lot more going on in life, but you're allowed to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Huh. It's interesting how, uh, I mean, we're at the end of the podcast and this is the point where I usually say it's the health lifestyle and mindset podcast. And this has totally been that. I mean, yeah. it, you know, the idea of talking about, uh, resolving addictions, uh, I thought was just going to be a geek out on, you know, vitamins and minerals and that kind of stuff. And all the stuff that goes on uh, cellular level, but it's been more than that. So, yeah, I thought about going into all that, but I think, I mean, if we ever wanted to have that kind of a conversation, we'd have to go back to video because for people to really get that, I think they need to see it. Yeah. And I think there's a human element to this. That's way more robust in the long term, you know, for us to identify with than just, Oh yeah, I got to get my zinc and magnesium figured out. <laughs> Although you do, you, you definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> that's just one part of it yeah. for sure. Uh, great conversation today, Michael. You too. Yeah. Uh, this has been Fusion Health Radio, uh, episode 54, Resolving Addiction to Sugar, Caffeine, and Alcohol. I'm Anthony Santa, and that's... Dr. Michael Smith. And uh, if you want to connect with us in any way, you can do so through, uh, let's see, Facebook. Uh, you can find us wherever you find your favorite podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, TuneIn, Player FM. The list goes on. The list gets keep getting longer. Yeah. Wow. We're all over that internet thing. Uh, if you did like what you heard today, please uh, share it with your friends. We'd love to uh, get more 
uh, listeners uh, in on the podcast. And uh, if you like what you heard today and you want to support us, please consider doing so. Uh, take a look for Fusion House Radio on patreon.com. Uh, again, I'm Anthony Santa, and uh, that's Dr. Michael Smith. And we will see you next time. Thanks, Michael. You have been listening to Fusion Health Radio. Please add your comments or post a question at Facebook slash Fusion Health Radio.